Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Would you please take up your Bibles and let's hear from this our wonderful Lord that we've just spoken to and turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 and we're going to read the whole chapter. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him from, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, 
and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. These are God's words to us. And please take up your Bibles again and turn back to Exodus chapter 2. Now, as we get into this chapter, uh, we're going to see the, the importance of knowing what to expect. And I wonder if you've had that kind of moment when you'd wish you'd known what to expect. Perhaps you went to see a film and it was just not what you'd wanted. It was a bit awkward for everyone involved, really. Or, or perhaps you've gone to a meeting and thought you're about to be sacked and then found out they were going to give you a promotion. You know, all that worry. If only you'd, you'd known what to expect. And it's, as it's true for the smaller moments in our life, we know it's true for the bigger ones too, isn't it? For, for what happens when we move to a new place or, or what it's going to be like when uh, we're married or have kids or our parents get older or we get older. We often wished we'd known. And as we get into Moses' early life this evening, we're going to see that God has actually given us a pattern, a pattern of what life will look like. He's opening up for us and teaching us what to expect in life. Now, not the specifics, but instead the overarching shape. It's the exodus-shaped life. That's what we're going to see. And a life we're going to see in Moses. Now, if you remember from last week, um, Exodus is setting the scene for us at this point. God's people, they've got these great promises from Genesis sitting over their heads. A great nation being blessed worshippers in their own land. But it feels a long way from that. Yes, there are now a lot of them. They're multiplying. But if you remember, they're in slavery in Egypt. And at the end of chapter 1, we actually saw their children were facing death itself. If you just look at verse 22 of chapter 1, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It's a horrific situation. And here in chapter 2, the writer's still setting the scene, but now we focus in on one man, Moses. God is getting his key person in place and ready. And he does that by shaping his life in a particular way. And first of all, we're going to see the shape of Moses' life. Then we're going to see it in Jesus and then in ourselves. So firstly, Moses' exodus-shaped life. Now, this is a really familiar story uh, for many of us, isn't it? We've got Moses being born to these two Levites that already had two children, perhaps at least. um, But they conceive again at this point in history. This edict of Pharaoh sits over them. They hide their baby boy for as long as possible. And then at about three months, they realize this hiding thing is impossible. Perhaps Moses' cries have become too loud, I don't know, but they're terrified. And perhaps for their own lives, for the life of their child, they're at kind of at wit's end and, and kind of give in here. In the midst of this, this awful situation, they decide to give up their child to the winds of God's providence. They, they probably assume that the baby's going to be found and killed, and they set their daughter kind of to keep watch and perhaps to confirm the worst. There's another horror for those parents as they place that child to a small basket and leave it 
uh, in the reeds, even where Pharaoh's daughter herself might come to the waters. Perhaps leaving it there must have been like back in the day, I don't know, a black slave leading, leaving their child on the doorstep of a racist white slave driver's house. You know, what, what hope did it have? The anguish, the last ditch effort to maybe save that life. And here we see God's mighty hand upon this little life. God miraculously preserves him. And like last week, we saw it's an incredible picture of the way uh, the enemy's best plans, they're nothing compared to the power of God, are they? It's Pharaoh's own daughter who saves this little life. The life of the the one God is then going to use against Pharaoh. But just here, as we we look at Moses' first few months, we need to kind of hear an echo, a familiar sound that reminds us of something. Here we're seeing Moses is already experiencing something of the exodus. Just think where he's placed as a baby boy in that little basket, in the reeds in the River Nile. The Nile, just think of the Nile. It's a river of death, the river in which many children have already been killed. And yet God saves him through this river, through these waters. It's a little uh, echo of the Exodus. God's people being saved through the Red Sea. That literal name of that sea is the Sea of Reeds. The sea that was a place of death as many Egyptians are swept away into it. But God's people are somehow saved through it. So Moses, this, this baby among the reeds, saved miraculously through the waters. It's an Exodus shaped life. And this exodus shape then starts to train him to know who he is because as Pharaoh's daughter spares the life of this little child, Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, uh, her quick response actually means Moses' mum gets to nurse the child and gets paid for it. It's brilliant, isn't it? And this is all part of the plan. Uh, His exodus-shaped life has allowed him, allowed Moses to form his identity as one of God's people. How else would Moses have known his own heritage? How else would he know his people's history and have some kind of identification with them? He must have been instructed at the knees of his mother and father as they prepared him for the royal household of Egypt. Even his name, it's kind of exodus shape and a reminder of his heritage. It's Moses and it's from the Hebrew to be drawn out of the water. And then as he he leaves home, heads to the royal palace, there before him is the wisdom of Egypt. And here he's glimpsing where the exodus is going to lead, the glory of a kingdom. But he's also being trained probably in law, justice, in the ways of state, how to run a nation. Here he's been given the all-round education that he's going to need for what lay ahead many years ahead. So with this kind of background, Moses begins to know He begins to understand who he is as one of God's people. Verse 11, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Moses, he's beginning beginning to move towards his brothers. He knows he is someone who belongs to the slaves, not to the palace. Verse 13, he goes out again the next day. This isn't like some kind of, you know, the member of the royal family just kind of stepping outside of their palace to join the normal people for a bit. You know, a bit like um, if you know the story of the queen did on V Day, she kind of went out into all the celebrations. But why is it not like that? Because, because the queen then just went back to the palace. But Moses seems to be doing more here. Perhaps this is, uh, I don't know, more like a, a prince of India of old going to join the lowest caste, saying to all, I'm one of them, and face the consequences. 
This is more than just understanding his identity. He's going towards them. But here we're seeing something also unique about Moses. He's also beginning to understand his role in God's salvation plan. Now, there's a couple of passages in the New Testament that speak about this moment. One's Acts 7, and Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin, as he, and he, he talks about what Moses does to the slave driver, and we'll come on to that in a moment. But, but Stephen says, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. In other words, in other words Moses, at this point, clearly has some understanding that, yes, he's an Israelite, a Hebrew, But he's not just one of the people. God has called him to lead the people, to bring them out, to be that instrument of salvation for God. It's it's like, I'm showing my age a bit here, but it's like that epic film, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, if you've seen it, okay? Kevin Costner, it's in the news recently because of the, the tree that was cut down. But there's this moment when Robin Hood joins the band of outlaws. You know, it's got kind of all the key people in it, Little John, Will Scarlet. And Little John's surprised because because Robin Hood's kind of the son of a rich man. He asked Robin, you know, so you've decided to join us then? And Robin says, no, to lead you. And, and it's, it's that kind of moment with Moses. He's, he's joining the outlaws in a sense. He's joining the slaves, his true people, but more than that, he's here to lead them. Uh, perhaps it was the way that the exodus was so ingrained into his life that made him realize this. This was his path, but there was more to come. Because God wanted Moses to experience more of the Exodus, to really get the kind of God he is. So let's read again from verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, looked on their burdens, and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? And Moses was afraid. As we've seen, Moses, he's begun to understand his role. He's to be God's instrument of deliverance. And we see glimpses of that here. You know, he's identifying with his people. He's defending one of his brothers against the oppressor. And he takes action. But there's also something not right here. Moses does this privately, verse 12. He he looks this way and that. The salvation of God's people was never meant to be kind of this private act. It's a public act. Later, God says that after his salvation, God's people are going to know because it's going to be so public that he is the Lord. God is about to reveal his glory and his majesty. It's a, a major, public, unique act against Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and over nature itself. Not a small moment in a back alley of Egypt. So that's one problem. There's also there's this hint that something's not right in what he does. The slave driver beats the Israelites. Literally, it says he struck the Israelites. Then Moses strikes the Egyptian. And then the Israelite strikes the other Israelite. Moses might understand he's God's servant, but he's acting like just, just like one of the others. They're all striking each other. And in the end, his actions undermine his role. The Israelite is indignant. They, you know, who made you a prince and a judge over us? It's clear Moses wasn't ready yet. He'd gone into it all wrong. He'd, he'd done things his own way. He'd just kind of plowed on without getting key instructions from God himself. 
I'm sure you can all think of someone a bit like that who just plows on perhaps at work or at home. You know, they never wait for the boss to give you the key steps in the process, just plows ahead, gets it all wrong and leaves disaster in their wake. And for Moses, this was serious. But God wasn't finished with him yet. He was still making sure Moses was the leader he wanted him to be. So actually we see here, Moses experienced a second exodus. God imprinted the exodus on him more deeply. Because what happens? He escapes Pharaoh's death threats once again. And in this second mini exodus, God takes him further. Actually out of Egypt itself. Out into the wilderness. The wilderness where the, the people of Israel will finally come. And he becomes someone who waters and tends the flock under his care. Again, just as he would do, not to sheep, but to people in years to come. He arrives in Midian, and he saves these seven daughters who are trying to give their sheep some water. Verse 17, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. That watering of the flock, it said again in verse 19, he drew out water for us and watered the flock. It's emphasized, isn't it? God was showing Moses more about the exodus God's people weren't just to be saved in some kind of warlike effort. Instead, they're to be saved for watering, to be brought out, to be cared for. Because Moses now spends the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd looking after his father-in-law's flock, tending them, caring for them, watering them. Extraordinarily, God's in no hurry here. He leaves him there. He prepares his servant, teaching him what the exodus really means. And this grows his identity as a Hebrew, verse 22. Moses' wife, Zipporah, gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, sojourner is one of those words we don't use very often, is it? It's it's another word for a foreigner, a visitor, a, a temporary resident in another place. Moses, he's feeling more and more he's not yet home, and nor are his people. The exodus, it's changing his heart. He's lived in Egypt as a foreigner, And now in Midian, and he's ready to go home. Now for Moses, God here, he is deliberately shaping and preparing Moses as a unique leader, isn't he? But this exodus-shaped life is also teaching him profound truths about God. He's teaching that God could save miraculously against Pharaoh, whether through the river or the wilderness. That God's timing was what mattered, not Moses's. That God really was the God of salvation and could even use a man like Moses. That he cared for all his people. And the, as the Israelites met Moses at the end of chapter 4, here was an eight-year-old man, very different from the one who left Egypt all those years ago. He's an educated, thoughtful, prepared instrument in the hand of God. And it was all through imprinting his life with the Exodus. And this gives us an extraordinary window, both into our our Savior and also also onto our own lives. If that was Moses' Exodus-shaped life, well, let's just take a look at Jesus's. Jesus' Exodus-shaped life. And as we look at Jesus' life, especially the early years, we see this Old Testament pattern clearly. Jesus, just think, he, was, he was walking in the footsteps of his forefathers. He was fulfilling the Old Testament exodus. Just think, he had to escape a murderous king as a toddler, miraculously preserved by his God. They escaped to Egypt, but then he leaves Egypt 
that place as an older child with his parents, brought out by God, coming across exactly the same wilderness. Then as an adult, again, he, he goes through the river waters, this time when baptized by John, like the Sea of Reeds, and then he's taken into the wilderness again, like God's people, rather than for 40 years, but for 40 days. Here was an Exodus-shaped life. Here was that Old Testament pattern being seen and experienced. Jesus, he's a true Jew, fully identifying with his people. This was God's true, eternal, perfect son, walking the path of Israel, God's son of old. But this fulfillment, this identification, it's not an end in itself. I'm sure it was teaching him. It was leading him the way he knew is to walk like it did for Moses. But it was also leading to what the Exodus was all about. As we began to see last week, the, the Exodus is pointing us, remember, to the grander story of the world. It's pointing us to the deeper spiritual realities of, of slavery to sin, of spiritual forces to, to death and new creation. And so Christ's walk of the Old Testament story didn't stop there. He then walked towards the true realities that the Exodus had always pointed to. He was not just a shepherd of the sheep, but the good shepherd then laying his life down for his sheep. And we see this at the transfiguration. Luke tells us this, And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His exodus, Jesus' death, that's what this was all pointing forward to. The exodus of old wasn't just the shape of his early years. It was the shape of his most significant part of his life. That death on the cross, that death as the Passover lamb. He went through the waters of death itself and then rose again to new life. Free from the grip of any slavery and death. Free from the Pharaoh of sin to, to enter heaven itself to worship at God's. This is the true exodus, the exodus of the Son of God. Jesus, it's Jesus' exodus-shaped life. And as we, we come onto our own exodus-shaped lives in a moment, we just need to rest here for a second. Christ's death, though it leaves an imprint on our lives, it's important to say it can never be replicated. It can never be done again or improved upon. Christ didn't walk one exodus of many. He walked the exodus. His death dealt with everything Moses and our lives point to. His exodus was once and for all. It's the defining moment. The, the history of God's people before Christ pointed forward to it. The life of the church points back to it. We live in its shadow. You know, even though Christ, in one sense, you could say he was the fulfillment of the exodus, we perhaps should look at it the other way around. The, the exodus and Moses' exodus-shaped life, they're all actually shadows of the real thing. God knew the pattern of the life of his son and so imprinted it back on the people of old. They experienced the life they did because God's son would experience the true salvation of his people. It's the real deal. And it's a one-off. As he, as he died, all our sin, past, present, and future was laid on him. As he cried out, Forsaken by God, the destroyer was pouring out his wrath so that we might be passed over. As he lay in the grave, life drained from his veins. 
He lay there so that the grave might never have a hold upon us. As he rose again, he earned the victory. He was justified, vindicated, and glorified all so that we might enjoy his victory too. It's the wonderful glory of the gospel, isn't it? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus, he's not just an example to us. He's not just a good man who shows us a nice way to live. He's not just kind of identifying with us to give us a good view of what love can look like. No, Christ's death, it actually does something. He wins. His exodus-shaped life is the foundation for our lives. He wins forgiveness. He guarantees glory. He brings us into the life of God as our Father. It's Christ's exodus-shaped life once for all. But extraordinary, it does then shape our lives too. Like Moses' exodus-shaped life, like Christ's exodus-shaped life, so we have our exodus-shaped life. And you may be thinking, well, I've, I've never been to Egypt. I've never been saved by a malicious dictator trying to kill me as a baby. I've never been a shepherd. And, and to, be honest, to be honest, you know, some of that I'm actually very glad about. Other bits, you know, you may want to put on your holiday retirement plans. But, but, but our lives aren't exodus-shaped in an Old Testament kind of way. Why? Because we need to remember Christ has come. Our lives do, do not replicate the exodus of God's uh, people from Egypt. We don't walk their path. Instead, we have the, the, um, the imprint of the, new, of the true exodus, what Christ has done on our lives. So although Christ's death and resurrection was a once-for-all event, we will and will never experience the exodus he did. Somehow, as we're saved by Jesus, as we're united to him by his spirit, as Paul puts it, as we're found in Christ, so our lives begin to be shaped by what he's done. They begin to reflect like a big mirror, Jesus, where you're united to Christ who died and rose again, so we have death and resurrection-shaped lives. Consider how Paul puts it. He says, his, um, this is, um, he is always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's the kind of exodus-shaped life. I mean, somehow as God's people, together, individually, we experience the death of Jesus that we might also experience the life of Jesus. We have a, a death and resurrection. Now, I don't know what your expectations are for the Christian life. Perhaps up until now, it's actually gone pretty well. And you kind of expect that to continue. I don't know, you've got great friends. Your, your family is stable. You love the fact, and they love the fact that you're a Christian. It hasn't I know, impacted your income too much. And the, the last person you told about Jesus is sitting beside you right now. You know, and perhaps on the whole, that is our expectation. It's, it, it'll always be like that. I think for the most part, it could be mine. I, I don't expect life really to be that hard. I don't expect problems to come my way. I, I suppose I'm enjoying the victory that Christ has won. I'm enjoying life, enjoying the good things. But as we look at the exodus-shaped life of Moses, we need to see that Christ over time is going to be forming a different shape of life on us to teach us 
like Moses, the meaning of the cross in a new way. So he's going to press a mold over us that begins to form us, not just in the shape of all that he's won, but also into the shape of his death. Just think of Moses. Twice he had to flee for his life, even through the rivers of death. Then he experienced 40 years as a farmhand in the wilderness when the the riches of the Egyptian empire just gloated at him from across the desert. In these things, he's experiencing the death of Christ. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth um, than the reassur- sorry, greater wealth than the reassurances of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It was the reproach of Christ that Moses was choosing. He was choosing for the exodus to shape his life. And so with us, God begins to pour us out, to shape us differently for his glory. We face harsh words from a friend over our faith. Our family perhaps leave us scarred and and push against our faith, perhaps even turning us out of the home. Illness takes away our security. We serve and we serve and we serve and thanks is never there. We struggle again and again to put lust or greed to death in our lives, battling away. Our colleague spreads, spreads some vicious lies against us, ruining our reputation. We care for an elderly spouse day after day after day. Small children scream and shout at us. Teenagers rile against us and we're not sure why. As Paul said again, we are, not, we are afflicted but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. It's an exodus-shaped life. Is that what you're expecting Is that the kind of life of faith? But as you do, may we realize that in the midst of it all, the life of Christ is breaking through. The power of the resurrection is hand. And as it is, this this death and life is making us into the people we were made to be. Not unique salvation leaders like Moses, but, but true people of God's. In our house group the other evening, we were discussing about how being a Christian can make life seem harder. But what was striking was testimony after testimony amongst the group of people saying, yes, but, but actually when my life was at its worst, that's when I knew God closer. That's when my faith grew strong. That's when I knew I was loved. That." That's the exodus-shaped life, isn't it? Death and life. God's power made perfect in our weakness. It's a Christ-shaped life. And as our lives take this shape, we do become more and more of the image bearers we are made to be because like Moses, in it all, God is showing us what he's really like, what Christ's death has won, what his victory is worth. He, He turns our eyes to glory and how wonderful it is. So so united to Christ, we may know that when we are weak, he is everlasting strength. When when we are in darkness, he is the son of righteousness. When we are sorrowful, he's the God of all comforts. When in distress, he's the strong tower that we might find safety. When we are dying, 
He is the fountain and the Lord of life. Because Christ died and rose again for us. That's the true Exodus-shaped life. Amen.